always imagined heaven like above the clouds, sort of. It will never be dark in heaven. Yellowish, orange, and I think there'll be angels singing. The streets and stuff would be like jello. And then we could have diamond armor if we wanted to. God will answer all my questions because I have a lot for when I get to heaven. We're going to eat really fancy foods. Chicken, Chinese food, macaroni and cheese. The all-you-can-eat buffet. A lot of Mexican food, because I love Mexican. A lot of junk food. Um, have rules. They wouldn't be like, you have to do this, you have to do that. Trash in heaven, I think it would disappear automatically without anyone touching it. It's going to be raining cash. One thousand a million dollars. Play with monkeys and lizards. I think there's going to be big fat pandas. <laughs> there's going to be a lot of kitties. You can hear the birds chirp every morning. Well, you have to omelet. Um, God into your heart. Be good and do nice things to others. Make a bridge across the gap from earth to heaven. You're just going forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and never ending. You could get spoiled. Well, everybody's got an opinion on heaven, don't they? Uh, especially little ones. Uh, welcome to Forest Hill Church, one church, three campuses. It's a pleasure to have you here today. We're in the third message of a series on heaven, hopefully giving you the Bible's insights on heaven. Uh, certainly, it's interesting what other people may have to say, particularly kids, but what I'm mostly concerned about is what does God's Word have to say about heaven. So to introduce today's message, let me do a bit of a review. I've tried through the years to help all of you have a biblical worldview, but you can't have a biblical worldview. In other words, how do you look at life, what's going on in the world through the lenses of the Scripture, unless you understand the divisions of the Scripture. So let me give it to you today, which has great implications for what heaven is like. The Bible begins in its first of four steps in creation, Genesis 1 and 2. And creation is pronounced good by God. It operates perfectly. Everything is as God intended it to be. The second step is the fall. That's Genesis chapter 3. Creation, again, is Genesis 1 and 2. The fall is Genesis 3. There was a malevolent, evil force that rebelled against God, envied God's power and position, and rebelled against Him, and took a third of the angels with Him. This evil one and his demonic dominion have tried to assail the Lord God of hosts and destroy everything that He's created. So He came to earth and tempted Eve first, then Adam, with the basic temptation, you shall be as gods. And eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat of that fruit, you will be wise. Your eyes will be open. You'll be as gods. God had warned them, don't eat of that tree. For the moment you do, you'll invite sin into the world. The temptation of the evil one worked. Adam and Eve bit the fruit. And sin came into their personal lives and permeated all of creation. So that at this point, there is a fall from God's once perfect original intent. Say those two words with me, original intent. One more time, original intent. What God intended the world to be fell. So now, because of the fall, everything has gone awry. Because of our rebellion against God, because sin has entered his world, everything has gone awry. So you ask me the question sometime, why is there death in the world? It's because of the fall. That was never God's original intent. Death is an evil intrusion into God's once perfect created order. You ask the question, why is there child abuse? Because of the fall. Because there's evil in the world because of that fall. Why are there tornadoes and earthquakes and hurricanes, etc.? Unnatural disasters. It's because of the fall. That was never what God intended in original intent. Why is there divorce in the world? It's because 
of the fall. People operate selfishly. They aren't willing to work through their issues and their problems. And the list goes on and on and on. Whenever you're asked the question by anyone in the world that says you're a follower of Jesus, well, if your God is good, why is there evil in the world? The answer is because of the fall. Because of rebellion against God, Genesis chapter 3. But God so loved the world, he didn't want to leave the world in its fallen state. So Genesis chapter 4 through Revelation chapter 19 is what we call redemption. It is the story of God forming a nation called Israel. And in that nation, he brings a perfect God-man into the world, Jesus of Nazareth, born in a stable in Bethlehem. This Jesus lives the perfect life you and I can't live for ourselves. And he dies on the cross to take the wrath of God for our sin and rebellion, Genesis 3, upon himself so that we don't have to receive it. And he wants to recreate and reestablish Adam and Eve's relationship with God that, he had in, that they had in original intent in Genesis 1 and 2 by that death on the cross. With their sins forgiven and being given the gift of salvation by grace through faith, now humanity can have a new relationship with God through Christ, that establishment of what was lost in the Garden of Eden reestablished. But there's still a problem, isn't there? This earth and creation still has fallen. Our bodies are still fallen. They're aging. They have aches. They get diseases. That still happens. So there's something for which still to look forward. What is that? That's the final step from creation, fall, redemption to the new creation. That one day in the second coming of Jesus, when he returns to this earth, Jesus is going to reestablish on this earth Genesis 1 and 2. He's going to reestablish Eden. He's going to reestablish original intent that one day there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. That's what we looked at last week. The prophet Isaiah talked about that 600 years before Christ. Jesus talked about it. Peter talked about it. Paul talked about it in his letters. And the book of Revelation is filled with it that one day there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. One day Jesus in his return is going to give us perfect bodies that was originally intended in creation. He's going to give this earth a new makeover. It will operate as God originally intended in Genesis 1 and 2. Now, if that's true, and that there's one day that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, all of us need to realize that new earth is where God wants us to live. That new earth is our permanent home. That new earth that Jesus will create in his second coming is going to be the home of all those who trust in Christ. Now, I can honestly say this earth in its present condition was never meant to be our home. But this earth in its new condition, in original intent, Eden restored, is so supposed to be our home. That's where we will live forever, which begs this question, and it's today's message. If that's true, David, for example, what about your mom and dad? Some of you may know that over the last five to six years, I've lost both my mom and my dad. They both trusted in Christ. They both believed in him. Well, the question is, well, where are they now? If the new heavens and the new earth is the ultimate home of God and us, that hasn't happened yet. They died. They trusted in Christ. Where are they? And here's the answer. They're in what some call intermediate heaven. It, it's not yet formed. It's not the new heaven and the new earth certainly hasn't been formed. They're in intermediate heaven. It's perfect. It's beautiful. It's glorious. It's just not our or their final destination. 
Let me give you an illustration. Um, let's say that I live here in Charlotte, and I live in a shack. It's roach-infested, it's dirty, garbage-filled, absolutely detestable. And one day, I buy the winning lottery ticket. Jackpot. Hundreds of millions of dollars are now mine. So I go to a developer and I say, this shack in which I live, I want it remodeled, restored, recreated to be a beautiful, majestic mansion, more beautiful than any other mansion on the face of this earth. He says, I can do that. He said, there's only one issue. I need you to get out of the city of Charlotte. You need to leave. First of all, there'll be all kinds of people wanting your money. But secondly, you just need to get out of here so that I can focus on the job. I think to myself, well, where can I go? And I remember, my mom and dad and most of my friends went to this place right outside of Dallas called North Fork Ranch. It is on the Guadalupe River. It's beautiful. It's majestic. It's glorious. I'll go be with them. So I leave Charlotte. And I go outside of Dallas, and I have a fellowship with my mom and dad and all those who had gone on before me. We enjoy that time together. We experience the beauty and glorious of this ranch. But there's only one problem. It's not my home. And I know my home is a recreated shack to a mansion in Charlotte, North Carolina. So after a while... I return to Charlotte where there has been built for me a place, a mansion of glory and splendor that almost puts to shame the beauty and splendor of the North Fork Ranch. Moreover, my mom and dad and all of my friends come back with me and we dwell in this beauty together forever. Dear friends, the intermediate heaven is the North Fork Ranch outside of Dallas. It's wonderful. It's splendid. It's just not home. So Charlotte is the new heaven and the new earth that God's going to recreate and remake. But when we leave here, we go be with our family at the North Fork Ranch outside of Dallas. That's where I believe my mom and dad are now. That's intermediate heaven still waiting for the second coming of Jesus with our new resurrection bodies, the new heavens, and the new earth, which is ultimately our home. Now, whenever I teach this, all kinds of questions are raised. And I tried to imagine the five questions that you would ask after this teaching. Let's go through each one now. The first question is, well, David, what happens immediately right after our deaths? Well, let's go to the thief on the cross in Luke 23, verse 43. As you know, Jesus is on the cross. He's surrounded by two thieves. Isn't it interesting with these two thieves, Jesus did not initiate the conversation about eternal salvation. He waited for them to do so. One thief could have cared less. He didn't believe in Jesus. The other thief came to the conclusion that Jesus truly is the Son of God. And he asked the question, where am I going to be right after death? And Jesus said to him, Luke 23, 43, and he said to him, read it with me, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now keep that paradise idea. I'll come back to that. But today, right now, you're going to be with me. So when we close our eyes, I think it's going to be like 
death falling asleep, and then we awaken, the first person we're going to see, I think, is the face of Jesus. We're going to be with him. Today you'll be with me in paradise. In fact, in Acts, the seventh chapter, verses 55 and 56, Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian faith, was getting ready to be stoned because of his belief in Jesus. But look at these verses. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Right before death, God gave him a supernatural glimpse into the intermediate heaven. And there he saw Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father. That right-hand position is the position of authority. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth, granted to him through the death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. So Stephen saw that immediately after death he would go be with Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be with the Lord. So immediately after death, you'll go be with Jesus. What an interesting insight. Uh, we have a family in our church uh, called Lynn and Nicole Clamp. Uh, they have a little three-year-old kid named Grayson. Grayson was born hearing impaired from birth. And UNC doctors and audiologists discovered a new surgery that could allow 30% partial restoration of his hearing. If you didn't see it this week, it was on CNN and Parade Magazine did a piece on it. It's a remarkable, remarkable story. But what CNN didn't cover, and Lynn told somebody else in Forest Hill, they're Forest Hillers, by the way, that the first words he spoke to his son at the age of three, the first words his son could hear were these. I love you, son. <laughs> when we die, I really believe the first words we'll hear from Jesus are, I love you, daughter. I, I love you, son. Welcome home. Immediately we'll be in the presence of Jesus. Then there's judgment after we're in his presence. Let me take a moment because I need to talk about this for a second. Nobody really wants to talk much about the fact that we're going to be held accountable for our sins. But we will be. There's a judgment that occurs right after death. And I want to address just for a second what some of you may have heard by the continual lies of the New Age movement that have been taught many of you as Americans. Some people listen more to Oprah than they do God's Word. In Hebrews 9.11, it is very clear that reincarnation is not true. Reincarnation is an Eastern, mystic, an Eastern mystic attempt to explain suffering in the world and that we are caught in an endless cycle of reincarnation after reincarnation. But the Bible teaches in Hebrews 9, 7 this, that it is appointed for every man and woman to live once, to die once, and be judged once. Our only shot at this life is this life. And one day we'll all be held accountable for how we've lived this life before the one who gave us this life. Now, at that judgment, people ask me all the time, well, David, how do you arrive at your very narrow view of Jesus' understanding at the judgment? And here's my response. You say that there are thousands of world's religion and that I'm arrogant to believe in the exclusivity of my own. But first of all, I didn't come up with that option. Jesus did. If you have a problem, don't talk to me. Don't object to me. Go talk to Jesus. Object to Jesus. He's the one who taught it. 
And I also continue and say, but there aren't thousands of world's religions. There are basically two. Either we can, through our good works, be pleasing to a perfect holy God and he'll let us into heaven, or it's impossible to work enough good works to please this holy God. I have come to the opinion, biblically, that all have sinned and fall far short of that perfect glory. That because of sin, in Genesis chapter 3, all of us have a nature inside of us that's selfish. And no matter how many good works we try to do in this life, we'll continue to fall far short of God's perfection. Moreover, in Isaiah, Isaiah says that all of our good works are filthy rags. What does that mean? It means that every one of our good works, in some way or another, are tainted with sin, tainted with selfishness. Either we did the work to make ourselves feel good, or we did the good work to get applause from other people. We give the gifts so that our name can be listed on the group of people who gave to the cause. There's some kind of taint of selfishness that's a part of the most gracious best gift that any humanity person gives. And all of them accumulated fall far short of the perfect glory of God. So if none of us can enter into heaven by our good works, we can't ever do enough. There's only one other option. It has to be done for us. That's why I say there aren't thousands of world's religions. There are two. You do the look. You do the study. We either enter into heaven by what we can do or what's been done for us. It's do or done. And what the Christian faith believes is that God so loved the world after the fall that he came to us and Jesus lived the perfect life none of us can do. And then he went to the cross and died the death that should have been our death. He took the wrath of the Father upon himself instead of us. And now he gives to us the free gift of eternal life. And that gift is given to us not by our good works, we can never do enough, but by grace through faith. So there are two world's religions, and you look at them. All the world's religions have what we have to do to earn God's favor to get into heaven except one. Juxtaposed against all those others is the sole Christian faith which says at the judgment seat, when God asks the question, why should I let you into eternity? The only answer we can give is thanks be to God for what you have done for me on the cross of Calvary. And I receive the gift of eternal life by grace through faith. And God will say, come on in. Do or done. We die, we're in the presence of Jesus, then the judgment. And I pray before you leave today, dear friends, none of us are guaranteed tomorrow, that you will deal with the Father and you'll have this question settled before you leave today. When you appear before the Father in heaven and he asks you, why should I let you into my eternity, how will you answer? And here's the answer he wants to hear. Because I trust in the completed work of Christ on the cross. And after the judgment of salvation, there's a judgment of works for the good works that we have done because we follow Jesus. We're not saved by our good works, but we're saved for good works. And there'll be a judgment of our good works, crowns given to us according to how faithful we have been. That's another message that will be dealt with later on in the Heaven series. Let's move on. The next question, to where do we go? Well, let's look again at Luke 23, 43. And Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Truly I say to you today that you will be with me, where? In paradise. 
in paradise. The word paradise there is another word for intermediate heaven. It's a Persian word, which means an enclosed garden. Have you ever been to one of those European gardens where everything is immaculately groomed and there are peacocks and other beautiful animals all walking around? It's an enclosed garden. That's the word here for Eden. The word Eden is found in Genesis 2.8. It means paradise, enclosed garden. Uh, the implication of Genesis 1 and 2 is God had regular encounters with Adam and Eve. And literally, heaven was God's house and Eden was God's backyard. And he would regularly step out of his house and have communion face-to-face -face with Adam and Eve. They would have times together, conversations with one another before the fall. In Revelation 2.7, it says there's a tree of life in Eden. That tree of life was in the Garden of Eden, too. It's the fruit from which Adam and Eve ate, which assured them they would live forever. Interestingly, in Revelation 22.2, it says that Eden now exists in the new Jerusalem in the intermediate heaven. And that in this new Jerusalem that exists in the intermediate heaven, there is a walled garden that is Eden already perfectly restored. And in the middle of that garden is the tree of life, where the saints who've gone on before us, who trusted in Jesus, regularly eat in order to live forever. And this new Jerusalem that exists in heaven the book of Revelation tells us will one day come down and completely consume the Jerusalem of this earth. When Jesus returns and starts the reconstruction of the new earth, the new Jerusalem is going to come down and make the present Jerusalem into the splendid city that's described in the intermediate heaven. It is a place where they need no sun nor moon because Jesus himself sits in the temple and he's the light by which everyone can see. When this new Jerusalem occurs in the new creation on earth, it will be the final destination point of many people. It will be the vacation desire of many people. Instead of asking to go to Maui, for example, or to the Bahamas, the greatest desire of everyone will be at least to go visit Jerusalem on a regular basis. There the streets truly will be paved with gold. There's onyx and silver and diamonds and rubies that are embedded in every building. It will be glorious beyond description. And that present Eden exists right now in the New Jerusalem. Imagine New York City in Central Park, a walled garden, if you will, but magnified a zillion times more and get a glimpse of how majestic this New Jerusalem and this New Eden is right now. And as glorious as it is, it's still temporary Dallas. It's not our final home. Thirdly, what kind of body will we have in intermediate heaven? Well, again, it's not going to be until Jesus' second coming that the new earth is created. It's not going to be until the second coming that we have our final resurrection body. So the question is begged, my mom and dad, for example, what kind of body do they have now? Or do they have bodies at all? There are two suggestions that people have made. First of all, that in intermediate heaven, everyone's a disembodied spirit waiting for their eternal resurrection body. Or they have some kind of a resurrection body that's perfect, glorious, without tears, stain, trials, turmoil. But it's not yet the perfect resurrection body or the more glorious resurrection body that we're going to have when Jesus returns. 
So what's the answer? Well, maybe Paul gives us an insight. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, Paul talks about an experience where he's taken into the third heaven. Some of you have read that. He's lifted up supernaturally into the third heaven. What's the third heaven? It's the intermediate heaven. The fourth heaven, which isn't really talked about biblically, except described as the new heavens and the new earth. But the third heaven Paul talks about is the intermediate heaven. And he's lifted up there. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. And it reads, And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. So in this experience, Paul couldn't tell whether he was in the body or not in the body. He couldn't tell whether he was a disembodied spirit or really had a resurrection body. So we need to look at another place to give us some more help. Did you know there are two characters in the Bible who never face death? The first one's name is Enoch, Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He was a righteous man. And he was able to step from this temporary world into the eternal world with his human body. The second person is Elijah, the great lawgiver, excuse me, the great prophet of the Old Testament. It says he took a fiery chariot into heaven one day. He didn't have to face death. So the question that we have is what happened to Enoch's and Elijah's body, earthly, when they went into eternity? Were they able to keep their own, or did God just yank off their uh, earthly bodies and give them a disembodied spiritual life? Well, let's continue to look further. Maybe there's an insight into the transfiguration experience. Uh, For those of you who want to read deeper about the transfiguration experience, it's in Luke chapter 9. Here's what happened. Jesus went on top of a mountain with Peter, James, and John, his inner circle, his closest friends. And while they were there, suddenly God transfigured Jesus' earthly body into his eternal body. And it glowed so brightly, the text tells us it was brighter, whiter than any other launderer's soap could have given to him. And then it says, out of nowhere appear, first of all, Moses, the great lawgiver, And secondly, Elijah, the great prophet. Now, now first of all, with Moses, I find this fascinating because God said to Moses, you can't enter the promised land because of some disobedience that you had. And Moses accepted that and died not having entered into the promised land. But isn't it cool? God allowed Moses to enter the promised land on the Mount of Transfiguration. Moses' foot stepped into the promised land. And isn't it incredibly glorious that he was allowed to do so with Jesus His Lord, God, and Savior. That's the kind of God I love to follow. A God who's a restorer of good things. A God who may deny this, but has a better plan that he gives us later on. And that's what he did with Moses. He appeared on that Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, along with Elijah. And they both evidently had some kind of resurrection body in their appearance, along with Jesus' transfigured body. So that would suggest to us that there is some kind of resurrection body that we receive when we die from here and go to intermediate heaven. Moreover, Revelation 6, some verses we'll read in just a second, suggest that the martyrs who are crying out to God for justice for what they've been through and other martyrs have been through are wearing white robes. You can't put on a white robe on a disembodied spirit. So the conclusion for me must be that we get a resurrection body in intermediate heaven. It's not the total one that we'll get later on when Jesus returns, but it's a wonderfully perfect body. Look at it this way. 
These bodies we have now are great. If we took steroids, which we shouldn't, but if we did, they could make our bodies bigger and stronger, faster and quicker. Let's imagine that when Jesus comes back, he's going to literally be able to inject in all of us spiritual steroids that will make our eternal resurrection bodies greater, bigger, stronger, more magnificent than even the intermediate bodies that we'll have. What is life like in the intermediate heaven? Let's look at Revelation 6, 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Real quickly, the martyrs in heaven were martyred for two reasons. Because of their belief in the word of God and their belief in the exclusivity of Jesus. In believing Jesus is the only way. Their witness to Jesus. May I just share this with you very quickly. Over my years of ministry with you and preaching the gospel, there are two reasons why people persecute me, hate me, send me angry letters or whatever. It's because of my unabashed belief that this book is the authoritative, infallible Word of God. And I preach what it says unashamedly, and it makes people mad. It oftentimes cuts against what the culture believes, and it convicts them of their own sin. Moreover, I preach in the uniqueness of Jesus I believe he is the exclusive sole way to the Father. Again, if you have trouble with that, please don't get mad at me. Get mad at Jesus. Write him an angry letter. John 14, 6, again, he said, No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus' disciples understood that when they preached in the book of Acts, they said there's no other name by which we can be saved except the name of Jesus. So I preached that. I believed that. And people get offended. But you know what? The offense that I've taken is a mere annoyance in comparison to what the martyrs have been through through the ages. It cost them their lives. They were tortured and punished because they believed in the infallibility of God's Word and the exclusivity of Christ. And they're in heaven now. And what do they do? They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? They cry out in prayer. Oh, God, when are you going to bring vengeance against those who wrongly killed us? And when are you going to bring judgment against those who continue to do so on this earth for those who believe in you? So a part of what's going to be going on in heaven is, I think, us joining the martyrs in crying out to God, when, Lord, will you bring possibly the final second coming of Jesus and the judgment of those who have hurt your saints through the ages? Then they were each given a white robe, suggest they can't be disembodied spirits, and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, until the time God finally brings justice to all those who have suffered for him, who were to be killed as they themselves had been killed. What else seemed to be going on in heaven is rest. Did you catch that? And told them to rest a little longer. Rest. Oh. How many of you like to rest? Oh. How many of you looking forward to a little rest this summer of a vacation? Beach or mountains? Which is it? Okay, everybody likes to go to the beach. Raise your hand. Mountains? Raise your hand. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, we all love rest, don't we? I can't help but wonder, as God said to the martyrs, I'm giving you a season of rest, that when we die and go to the intermediate heaven, that the saints who've worked so hard for God are going to be given a vacation before the second coming of Jesus. 
We're going to be allowed to rest and enjoy fellowship with one another, not rule or reign or do any work yet for God, but just rest. There'll be a needed vacation. I think of my daddy, for example. My dad preached until he was 90 years old. He, he preached here in this chair, sitting and begging for you to give your lives to Christ. And my daddy died the last year with a severe case of diabetes. He suffered and struggled and hurt. And I've just got to believe that Dad's in heaven right now getting some rest. Now, my mom, dementia for 17 of her last years of this world, her memory's been restored. And she is resting in the battle she fought. So it looks like rest is going to be a part of the intermediate heaven. I like that. There'll be prayers. Revelation 8, 4 says, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Evidently, when we're in heaven, we'll be praying to the Father. We, we see that with the martyrs, they're crying out for justice for those who are still being hurt on this side of eternity. Implies that we'll, they know what's going on on eternity. We'll look at that in just a second. But if you don't like to pray now, folks, if prayer is boring to you, you're going to hate heaven. Because a part of what we're going to be doing in the intermediate heaven is praying. The prayers of the saints ascend to the Lord. Final question. Do the saints in intermediate heaven see what's happening here on earth? Well, the first answer must be yes, because we just saw they're going to pray. But here's a better insight what's going to be happening in heaven. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. It begins with this word, therefore. Now, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to know what it's there for. The purpose of the word therefore is to connect you with what's just been said. Hebrews 11 is all about the saints from Abraham to David to the prophets who looked forward to the day of Jesus but didn't see it. They, weren't able, they died before it happened. So all these saints looked forward to the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, but they didn't see it happen. Therefore, remembering these people who didn't see the actual day of Jesus... Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Throw aside every sin, every piece of godlessness, every unholiness in your life that's keeping you from running this race of faith in Jesus. Throw it aside. And as you throw it aside, the writer of Hebrews tells us, realize there's a group of saints in intermediate heaven that are cheering you and me to the finish line. And they're yelling things like, in a marathon where you have the streets lined with people, they're lining the streets of heaven, yelling at you and me, keep on going! Don't give up! Remain faithful! It's not that much farther Keep running. Don't be discouraged. You will make it. I promise. Keep going. Keep going. And, you know, there are days, and I hope you don't think I'm crazy, when I'm really convinced that deep in my ears I hear a deep baritone voice that sounds eerily like my dad's, a voice that I think God was envious of, by the way, <laughs> that is yelling to me, son, keep going. Don't be discouraged. Don't let them get to you. Keep running. Be faithful. The end line is near. And I believe your family members and friends who've gone on before you, the cloud of witnesses that surround us daily, are yelling, 
in the streets of heaven and their words are echoing off the walls of heaven into our ears, encouraging us to keep on running. So if we go on to the intermediate heaven, my bet is we join the chorus of cheerleaders. One final thought. Do you long for heaven? Do you long? My guess is if you don't long for heaven, you like this earth more. And one of the reasons I believe in God is because of the amazing fact that whatever I long for here is met. Think about it. I long for water. I'm thirsty. There's water. I I long for food. I'm hungry. There's food. I I long for relationships. There are friendships here. I, I long for sex. There's the ability for that to be given to me. I mean, every longing here is satisfied here. But, but here's this question. I don't know about you, but I long to see my mom and dad again. I long to see my friends whom I love and have gone on again. So if that longing is there, shouldn't there surely be an answer to it? And, of course, the Scripture says, yes, exclamation mark. And that longing will be met in paradise, the intermediate heaven, and the continued longing for the new heavens and the new earth upon the return of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have no hope. <clears throat> the truth is, every single one of us who misses a loved one cries. We grieve. Tears are a gift from God to cleanse the soul. But here's the difference between those who know Christ and don't know Christ. Those who don't know Christ grieve and grieve, and grieve. But those of us who know Christ, what? We grieve with? With hope. We grieve with hope. We grieve believing we will see them again. We'll see them again. If that excites you today, would you give God the glory? Would you please? (laughs)